Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. And we are here with our friend, C. Derek Varn. He is the host of Varn Blog, Mortal Science, and Pop the Left, making the rest of us look lazy, um, as well as the editor of Former People Literary Journal, a teacher, and a commentator and general man about town. How you doing, Derek? I'm okay. I'm okay. Do you prefer Derek so or Varn? Because you have many names. Uh, so I'm branded with Varn, which I actually used to hate. I don't love my surname, um, but I avoid most of my legal names. Um, so it's it's one of those things. So you can call me Varn or you can call me Derek. Most people, most people in my personal life call me Derek. Most people who know me on the internet call me Varn. Or at worst, they call me C, which I don't understand. <laughs> That's so, your first name. Well, if you'll, yeah. <laughs> if you'll excuse me, I'll call you Hellfire and Varnation for, yeah, the, uh, for the duration of this podcast. Well, we are... Big, big, uh, Big fan of um, of Pop the Left, man. I think you guys do some really great work. I have to say, I've probably seen most of them, uh, at least going back some time. I feel like what you guys are doing over there at Zero Books uh, is like cl- similar or close to what we're trying to do, which is like a trying to like re- rejuvenate some sort of like Marxist critique outside of the baggage of the left, or like trying to revisit um, ideas and theories and movements from the past, and trying to like I don't know, just just recapitulate, rethink it. So, cheers to that. You guys do good work. So, see Derek Varn, there is a clip currently circulating on social media where you give us a shout out for quote our communization critique of the DSA left unquote, before pivoting to criticize me for nonetheless participating in it. Are you aware (laughs) of the popular web comic wherein a medieval peasant makes a similar intervention? (laughs) No, No, I'm not. Well, it's great. Got to show it to you. All right. I think I've seen that a couple of times. It was, it was that particular clip amused me because who was bringing it up were people who were who were chastising you um, and me, I guess, for like even considering communization because they were, quote, the real Marxist, unquote. Um, and uh, what was f- what I found funny about that bit of hate is I think it spread um, more positivity about Antifada. Did <laughs> like the original critique was completely lost. So. <laughs> I mean, what we're critique like, were you trying to get at there? Oh, <laughs> was it the- in my original post? Um, I it's for for me, it's actually hard to figure out what the strategic orientation towards the DSA should actually be. Um, Join the club. My, <laughs> um, I I have a policy where I refuse to give them money or join, but I will do work with them and I'll do educational stuff with uh, educational stuff with them. And there, you know, obviously a lot of the local stuff I do here in Utah, um, they are tangentially involved in. Although, admittedly, lately they've been less involved than the other left groups, including groups I like less, um, even less than the DSA. <laughs> So it's it's been an interesting trend. They seem to be mostly focused on electoral stuff here now, and mostly for the na- mostly for national electoral stuff, not even local. So, issues. what issues will you work with them on, or have you worked with them on? 
um, done mutual aid work with them. We did uh, anti-immigration prison work, which they were tangentially involved with. And then I will definitely take any help that I can get in the teachers' union fights. But I'll be honest with you, our, teacher, our teachers' unions out here in Utah are pretty conservative and... Uh, um, there, the DSA's involvement is minimal. Um, also, I mean, this may be unique to here. Most of the DSA here is students, so they're not particularly useful in, in union stuff because they're not a member of any union um, and thus can only aid tangentially. I see. And what, when, whence wither your, uh, your principled stance against... Um not just electoral tactics, but like giving money to a group that does them. Well, because because I can't I can't state what what uh, where that money's going to go, and most of the way the structure of the DSA goes, uh, you, most of your dues go to the national, and most of the nationals' concerns tend to be tangentially related to supporting. Um, Democrats, frankly, um, and, um, people running as Democrats. Off, people run Democrats. Um, and, I like uh, to think of them as dinos, but, you know, results may vary. Um, and I think that, that that trajectory can be supported locally. Like if you wanted to support, say, Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib locally for local particular issues, that's a completely defensible position. Um, but if I'm giving money to the Progressive Caucus, it's not going to even go to, to the particular candidates that I would necessarily even want. Um, nor do I structurally have reason to trust a lot of those candidates in the long term. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's kind of a complicated position. Also, like, I wish if we were going to have a sectarian left clearinghouse, which I think the DSA effectively is... Mm. Um, I wish we had it in something that was not, that was both not a party, but also not adjacent to a party in its origins in the way um, DSA is. And despite claims to the contrary, the Harringtonite origin of the DSA is written into its national structure. It doesn't go down to the locals consistently, but that kind of doesn't matter because of how confederated um, the DSA structure actually is. Um, so, uh, yeah, I have a long thought out critique of the DSA and I am more there. It, it's interesting, though, because I'm also hesitant and we might talk about this later on because I was in a group that wanted to critique the left from the left, but not be part of the current left for a while and about 10 years ago. And I think that's not a coherent position either. You're, you either have to work with the you know, with the people as they actually exist or find whatever subject you're going to work with and meet them where they actually exist. But like positing it as some kind of ideal standpoint from outside of both is like a non-starter, which is probably a more elaborate answer to your question. You probably were expecting. That's all right. Um, I feel like we're off to a good start. Um, so <laughs> I just want to clarify by sectarian left cleaning house, you mean clearing house, you mean like a big tent organization? Yeah, Big Ten organization. So what has tended to happen with a lot of the left-wing sects is they kind of have a natural limit of about 2,000 people. The bigger ones have a natural limit of seemingly of about 5,000 people. I can't tell you why it is 
that way it's just consistently that way you can map it out over time and the dsa was just like that for 40 years i mean since its conception in the early 80s until until right after bernie when it started growing like exponentially by the month for a while it was pretty crazy um i had wanted that actually to happen with the iww mm. in fact uh i i did a podcast in 2013 which you know in podcast years it's a bajillion years ago <laughs> um about hoping that something happened with 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 the reinvigoration of the iww to get it on a on a scale where it was pluralistic enough to have all these different groups and different ideas represented. Um, but actually would do union work, giving a more organic relation to the quote, working class, unquote. Without well, the implicit uh, connection to the Democratic Party. Right. Maybe if Bernie had called himself an anarcho-syndicalist, that would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it was also interesting because I'm not an anarcho-syndicalist, but it's, it was, it was what, I, what I had hoped. Um, the Sanders campaign both heartened me and threw me for a loop. So it, it was something that, I mean, in one way it played out the way I kind of thought it would, but it did not, but it's, it's whole emergence in the first place sort of took me by surprise. Um, I think it took everyone by surprise. Right. I mean, we've had candidates like that, like way before Bernie. I mean, like Mike, I was part of the Mike Gravel campaign in 2008. Hell yeah. Not the recent oh. one, um, and and OG uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, I I remember the Dennis Kucinich campaign, which was a much vaguer thing than Bernie in a lot of ways, but had a, m- many of the same talking points, and they were you know two three percent of the vote dead in the water, mm-hmm. um, and Bernie was able to capture this mood that. I think a lot of what I, I'm dealing with now is how people respond to the fact that, despite that, there seems to have been a natural limit to its, to its ability to deal with the Democratic Party. And the DSA, the DSA's growth patterns are interesting and if you want to look at this too, because they actually stalled during the height of the second Bernie campaign and have grown in response to its, you know, more morbidity. But it's also led to like, frankly, a a kind of grifty commentary industry where we're all like picking on either supporting or shitting on the squad all the time, you know, like, which is sort of tangential to anything important. And to be fair, that is not largely a DSA phenomenon. True. I mean, I was also very hard to generalize about the DSA. uh, Pretty sick of that slash doesn't really think it's important. Um, the issue that you have with the DSA is on the historical scale of left, of left movements in America, you have to go back before 1945 to find anything quite that big. Although the SDS movement is pretty close. Um, if you, however, look at it in the scale of general population, it hits above its weight actually, because it's, it's microscopic in a country of over 300 million. You know, 100,000 is a lot in in left terms because we're used to organizations that are like, literally most left organizations are like 300 people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 
but it's 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 just hard to it's hard to grapple how big the scale you're dealing with is. Even when you like talk about DSA reach out into unions, which in the last two years they've gotten a lot better on. Um, the UE stuff is vital actually, but the UE is a small union, mm. um, and it's hard to it's hard to convince very very well established. Um, workers organizations that are frankly very politically connected and have professional lobbying organizations attached to them to really take a risk on a left-wing organization that is that small outside of a state like New York or California. Um, so, you know, I think part of my response to a lot of DSA stuff is a lot of this is postured as political realism, but like it really isn't when you look at the grand picture of things. Um, but it's been nice to see some victories on the local level, for, you know, uh, for social Democrats, even though social democracy is, I don't think, really on the table. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with you. And yet I've been making calls for Brandon West, candidate for city council, because um, I hate the fucking cops and I want there to be fewer of them. And that is what one thing that he's focused on. Um, maybe this could move us into like more of the theory part of our discussion, but you you express some skepticism of the DSA because it's like taking the form of a party. What uh, what do you mean? Uh, not really. It's it's adjacent to a party. Actually, it's sort of the problem with it is it can't is it doesn't know if it wants to be. Um, a broad-scale workers' movement sort of thing, or a socialist, or a socialist and left clearinghouse, um, and those are kind of different things. It doesn't really have the means outside of outside of very specific cities to really reach out to the quote working class unquote. Um, part of that has to do with just d- general complications, I think, in proletarian relations, which which is. Right now, I mean, you see a thousand kind of uh, new class theories to try to explain what's particularly going on. That that isn't historically new. Um, whenever there's a crisis of the left after after a major period, usually when when uh, a, a, something like a centrist progressive wins, I'm thinking of during the FDR administration into the 50s under Eisenhower, um, you see posits of a new class, mm-hmm. uh, like a third class of managers or whatever. And there's a there's usually a kind of weak sociological truth to this. Um, but if you look at the main drivers of, of you know, economic production in, the, in an area, um, it starts to fall apart as, an expl- as any kind of explanation. Um, the, the bigger issues um, is that most left strategies, frankly, are based on early 20th century industrial industrialization patterns and we're very nostalgic about that and we don't want to give it up um, partly because when we have given it up in the past I'm thinking about the new left march into the academy and NGOs right Be, you know they, they uh, a lot of the new left posited this problem in the in the early 60s um, it led to professionalizations remove you know legitimizations recuperations of of left-wing activism into basically the mainstream of society that really kind of neutered its ability to do much Mm. and you compound that with laws like taft hartley and certain tax structure things and it, it gets overwhelming for kind of 
organic left activists to act legally <laughs> um, within formal capacity pretty quickly. Um, and the DSA very much seems to want to deal in that formal capacity realm um, without going into, you know, the NGO problems or even the problems of being a party that's separate from the Democratic Party. But this kind of dual stance where, like, you know, it's almost the DSA isn't what it's a, it used to be a meme, like the DSA isn't a church. You know, the left. Is oh, the church, I right? threw but, a party that was themed around that, actually, <laughs> in a church bar. Bar church. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in some ways, that's like, that's a kind of manifestation of people wanting to deal with the fact that their social organization is kind of like a, it's an affinity group. It's, it's an affinity group based around ideas and beliefs. And that's kind of a church. Um, and our mutual aid stuff and, and stuff like that is very vital for, for a lot of things politically. And so I'm not one of these people. There's been this kind of movement of the center of the DSA to kind of shit on, on mutual aid on, on social media recently, which confuses mm -hmm. me because A, it's one of the main things DSA chapters actually do, mm. and B, um, uh, it seems like very blind to dual power constructions and all that. I mean, yes, mutual aid by itself is charity, but... You can't. I can't think of a successful non-electoral route to power. Even a even a, a party that is both electoral and has a non-electoral wing. And unfortunately, I guess maybe we should talk about the best example of that in the modern world, which is Hezbollah and Hamas. There's <laughs> um, And the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. So yeah. Um, <laughs> so you know, that's that is. Uh, mutual aid is such a huge part of how those groups were able to gain legitimacy in those areas they literally had enough mutual aid functions to replace elements of the state mm -hmm. and in and under uh, the palestinian occupied territories where the infrastructure was basically choked to death um they were able to step in whether or not you agree with all their ideologies sort of irrelevant to what social role they played yeah. um you know, and it is similar to the, the bolsheviks between 1914 um, and 1917 they did a lot of similar things. So did Dimensionists, actually. It was a common strategy of the early socialist groups. It was also easier to do in the early 20th century because you needed less technical expertise. Mm. Um, I, I think about like trying to run a clinic now with, with real doctors where I can handle some serious stuff for poor people. And it does get, both from licensure reasons and for just the expertise needed it's a little bit harder to imagine where you pull pull those people from than you could you know a hundred years ago when when like going to a doctor was probably just as much of a dice roll as not um you're also dealing with a time of mass industrialization and like socialization right. in the factories and also of course uh urbanization before suburbanization so we have a, a lot of the problems i feel like we have is that uh, people don't see each other anymore and the sort of associations that existed that could have brought people together inside the workplace and out are gone, which is actually another argument for mutual aid type stuff, which is uh, reconnecting working class people with one another under the rubric of something self-organized and something in a positive vision. Um, mm -hmm. But, but uh, the, you, you say this, um, 
this kind of um, yearning for the early 20th century. We live in such a vastly different social world right now that I think a lot of what the DSA and other groups are trying to deal with right now and the Bernie campaign trying to deal with is this intense alienation and disintegration of the class, both spatially and politically. Uh, like mm-hmm. the Bernie Sanders campaign was surprising to me because, you know, as a vulgar workerist, I looked at the history of the United States and I looked at uh, our economy over the last 12 years since the crash. And one would have expected, as has happened cyclically in the past, a um, organic uh, working class militant pushback um, against the, the uh, against uh, the, the employer's offensive against neoliberalism, as happened in the 1930s and, and in the 1970s. But that militant working class self-activity, uh, to the extent that it existed, was too weak to kind of pose its own questions, you know, and, and to kind of become an organic, uh, independent force. And so Bernie comes in in 2015 and seems to offer like a way out of that without a militant working class movement to say we can vote ourselves into power we can take over the democratic party we can use that in order to like create the sort of workers rights that could create a militant labor movement and um it was it was it all seemed very sort of backwards to me he tried to know. reverse engineer a movement right because there wasn't one right. like he didn't have a choice and it was an interesting idea and it didn't work it's interesting because I'm, I'm gonna like, in some ways, posit comparing ourselves to our our uh, mirror enemies over there on the right is that it actually is a strategy that the right has used a lot, which is the um, the manufacturing of a movement where there kind of isn't one. Um, there's a a natural limit to it even over there, um, and it's not as big as people think it is. <laughs> You know, it can it can pull about twenty percent of the population in uh, from from kind of um, scared, prolonizing parts of the upper petite bourgeoisie and like very very secure parts of the working class. Um, but it's not. It's also not stable at all as a strategy. And what was weird about that, as you know, I think. Um, I didn't hear Bernie articulate this, but I, I have, frankly haven't been following him as closely in the last six months because his relationship to the Biden administration has been interesting to me, um, to put it mildly. But I, I will say that uh, um, to really think about things a, a little bit harder, I think that uh, Ed Offrey Jr. actually articulated what you guys are saying is like he tried we tried to use a movement depending on the workers movement to build the workers movement right. itself which is weirdly circular but that's not unique to Bernie or social democrats I think a lot of Marxist Leninist and Kalskiists and stuff have essentially the same political logic which is if you know if we build it not only can we merge with the working class movement we will create the working class movement in which to merge with which historically may have worked once in a in an area that was not heavily developed um you know you're talking about like um and the russian empire and you know the early 20th century none of our conditions right now like not even just the difference between us in the early 20th century but like i can't think of a society in many ways further away from um, the United States and the Russian Empire in the beginning of the 20th century. Like, there's, like, so few of those conditions are applicable. Um, 
you know, we, we don't have a population of 80% peasantry. Right. Like, that's just not a thing. In fact, you know, even our agricultural proletariat is probably, what, 3% of the workforce. Right. It's very small. Well, you say that it has kind of worked for the right, and um, I see I see that. I mean, the, the big manifestation for that was, like, the Capitol Hill insurrection, obviously. It's like, oh, we tried to force the vote, and nothing happened except certain people made, you know, more money <laughs> as media figures, uh, and people at AOC's office had to pick up the phone a bunch of times when people are like, why won't that stupid cunt force the vote? They tried a similar thing on the right, which is to say, like, sort of an internet media-led movement or non-movement, as the case may be. And, you know, they still looked like clowns, but they physically went to a place and stirred up a lot of shit. So, like, I've been thinking pretty hard about why uh, these tactics work better for the right. And the primary conclusion I've come to, I mean, besides the fact that they're, like, actually not acting against the existing order uh, on the level that we are is um, they have something binding them together and that thing is whiteness and whiteness has a lot more power uh, as a cultural identity in this country than um, class does I think or like you know leftist versions of intersectionality unfortunately Oh, I think there's some truth to that, although one of the interesting things about whiteness and and uh, and this construction of whiteness that we have with uh, you know, like the insurrectionaries is unlike in previous epochs, it's kind of cagey on actually saying its name. It, it was more explicit about it in the beginning of the Trump administration than it is now. Um, and that's partly because demographically it's a doomed proposition. Mm. Particularly if you have a conception of whiteness that is um, anything related to traditional WASP purity notions of whiteness, where most of us here, who I think are pretty pasty, would normally would normally would not have historically passed, um, you know, for whatever reason. I don't know about Sean, but you know, um, uh, Jamie and I have some Semitic stuff. I have some other some other issues that would have would have at least made us. Highly provisional in the early parts. Of the I was century. I was an ethnic white, an ethnic urban white. My family was through the twentieth century. So and what yet, that meant was, as time went on, I became whiter and whiter. Until here now, and here just, you are now. Yeah, and here here, here we all are now. I mean, whiteness is a historically malleable category, as exactly. we've spoken about, Extremely. which is why you know people act surprised that there are Hispanics among the uh, the alt right and the Capitol insurrection. And it's like guys. There's plenty of Hispanics who identify as white. Yeah. I mean, furthermore, I mean, like the 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 the, in, the indigenous uh, indigenous here, I mean, as indigenous to to Latin America. I do not mean as an indigenous people in Latin America. Um, conception of race isn't the same as ours, but it it overlaps. It's still settler colonial. It's just actually just slightly more complicated with more grades. It's not binary. There's like there's a chart literally. Um, Speaking of uh, settler colonialism, we touched on it a little while ago, but there's uh, there's some current events happening right now. We have the uh, the indigenous mutual aid organization Hamas um, being bombarded by the settler colonial uh, Israeli state. 
We have every day for the last, I don't know, four or five days now, we've had these horror stories coming out of Gaza. We've seen something we hadn't seen in, for 20 years, which is uh, communal violence in Israel itself. Uh, there have been like riots and insurrections in various. There's been a towns. pogrom. There's been a pogrom, yeah. There's been an anti. There's been an anti-Arab pogrom. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, like I don't, I don't want to soften that at all. Um, I, it's. The Israeli situation and the Palestinian situation is is interesting because um, I, this came up on my on Barnblog the other day. We were talking about this um, in the in the West. I don't like that term, but let's just you know what I mean. Like Europe and the United States, uh, uh, parts of Canada um, and Israel sometimes. Yeah, and Israel depending um, what kind of argument someone is trying to make. Right, 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 right. Um, I uh, I will say that uh, anti anti Israeli sentiment's never been higher um, than it is probably right now. However, if you look at the political situation around uh, around Israel, Israel has never been safer in its yep. own region. Hundred uh, percent. And I I think that's something we have to. I think that actually breaks a lot of hearts of a lot of leftists who are used to awareness being a key. Yeah. Um, our popular sentiment being a key thing to, can shame governments. Well, I mean, the Netanyahu government doesn't really care if we think they're religious. No, they anymore. really don't give a shit. And the um, the Arab street, quote unquote, uh, the uh, the rank and file, the MENA populations, uh, whatever they may think about Israel Palestine, and of course, it was part of a larger secular-ish, left-ish, uh, pan-Arabic movement through the certainly through the late 20th century. Uh, the Palestinians and the PLO were a big part of that. Now, I mean, the Gulf states have completely given up. The, there's been, um, um, or sold out, I guess you could call it. There's been normalization of relations between a bunch of uh, Middle Eastern Arab countries and Israel. And uh, I think that, yeah, you're right. I think Netanyahu and the real, the real fascists, the Kahanists out there, are starting to realize that if they can gain hegemony over uh, Israeli politics, and in some senses, maybe ideologically, they're they're on their way towards that. Plus, they have nuclear weapons. Plus, they have this completely militarized society and population. Right, the IDF is literally everybody is part of the IDF, except if you're Haredi. Right, you have a militarized settler colonial population. I don't think they're sure that they need to care anymore. You know what no, Americans no. Are, and even American Jews think. You know, because this isn't ultimately like. Uh, a, a Jewish question, nor is it a, a Muslim question. That's part of it, right? But uh, all of the protestations by J Street and liberal Jews in the United States, as much as it's heartening to see, isn't going to change the facts on the ground. And the facts, the fact is that the Israeli state is completely and utterly empowered, not just by American support, but by political conditions and their own power. They they have complete control over that situation. And so, yeah, all the awareness in the world, I'm not sure, matters against these Kahanist psychopaths. Yeah. Well, I think. Go ahead. Jenny. I'm. I'm wondering. Okay. I feel like a lot of the reason why we are seeing these massive solidarity protests uh, on the left and people are like, oh, why aren't you protesting some other country with human rights abuses? Is because of the massive amount of military aid that goes from the U.S. to Israel. Um, and you know, it might be too soon to tell. But it does seem like the Biden administration is determined to stay the course for whatever reason. And they're not even really trying to recuperate these protests in the same way that they tried to recuperate Black Lives Matter. 
uh, to varying degrees of success. So why, why do you think that is? Because I do think that the organized left and, you know, Americans in general have a responsibility to do whatever they can to make their government at least stop doing shitty things. I agree. I think it's because of the defense, the defense uh, alignment, um, particularly the, and ironically, this is where our normal political valences are going to be skewed. Um, it is paleoconservative people in the military who are more likely to agree with us on Israel than the liberal end of the military industrial complex. Um, and I, I think that should make us uncomfortable, but it is the truth. Um, so I actually think a lot of it has to do with American power in the region and what, what particularly that end of the political spectrum, uh, spectrum's po like military apparatus thinks. Um, as far as the political capital, I mean, ignoring popular sentiment on this is, hasn't had a whole lot of cost. Uh, you know, people don't tend to actually vote against Democrats, um, on issues involving foreign countries. And that's, that's not just in, the, in regards to Israel, frankly, it is also in regards to wars in the past. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to be cynical about the electorate, but in some ways you have to be cynical about the electorate. And I would just like to include the electorate is not technically speaking, the American population, even if it is an increasing part of it. Um, it's, you know, I think now we're up to, we're up to like 70%, but generally it's it, more people would prefer not to vote than vote in the working class. And even overall, it would be normally around, um, 40% abstention, that, that abstention is hard to gauge how organic it is because how many people in the southern states are not, al are not allowed to vote due to felon laws, not uh, overwhelmingly to, um, affecting black and, uh, black and other people of color, but also it affects a lot of the white working class in the south too. Um, uh, Seg Gravel campaign, when I, when I canvassed for that, I used to go into both uh, what I like to call rural shit kicker areas, which is kind of where I'm from and the black community. And one thing I would find is most of the men could not vote because they were technically felons in both communities. So it was, it, it led to a, a bunch of weird political calculations. We've seen victories on that front and like ballot initiatives in Florida. Um, however, um, the courts have been able to, to weaken them at every turn, even when they have been passed through popular initiatives. So, the 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 retribution the, the retribution against felons and, and and quote criminals unquote is beginning to die down in the popular imagination but it doesn't really matter if the courts still interpret how you pass the laws what do we do about democracy man what do we do about american democracy it seems like american democracy to the extent that formerly it was like a powerful force i don't know it seems like our civilizations in a really bad way right now on the stream the other day you um what was it that we were talking about? We were talking about you were in the chat, and we were I was. and we were talking about um, like historic this historic universalist uh, like liberal democrat democratic bourgeois right, and whether we can imagine that in Palestine or in Israel you could have and all over the world you could have something like in 1848 like a series of democratic quad democracy revolutions that pop off, and I'm very. I'm very skeptical about that for sort of uh, historical reasons. It seems like everywhere the, the, the liberal democratic nation state is crumbling. And I'm not sure what relationship we should be having to like to bourgeois political parties or even to like 
I don't know, the vote qua the vote. What do you think? Right, because, like, if it's the thing it's crumbling into is fascism, then we all have sort of a knee-jerk horror at that, as we should. But at the same time, uh, you know, liberal democracy is not the thing we're fighting for. So what do you do? And and let me just put a finer point on it, too. This gets back to the discussion you guys were having about the DSA and about left tactics and about the relationship that the left, even the communist left, has uh, with the with the current political order, i.e. the Democrats. We're stuck in this incredible bind right now because without like an independent outside force, if you're going to defend democracy, if you're going to defend civil rights, if you're going to try to get like a slightly less inhumane policy, American policy in the Middle East, it seems as though you're compelled to fight alongside the liberals and fight within the Democratic Party. And that seems like a trap that we have a really hard time getting out of right now. Well, I mean, that does sort of kind of get to my own tactical orientation about this. Um, uh, I don't trust politicians in, instinctually. This has been a trait uh, through my life, regardless of what side I have been on politically, frankly. Um, but uh, if you are going to have a relationship with them, it must be totally instrumentalized. And you're not building a movement for them. You are building a movement that will use them in so much that they will allow themselves to be used for it. And they're representatives. That's what they're supposed to do. That is what they're supposed to represent. Democratically speaking, though, I think we have to be honest about how democracy actually works. Um, Particularly in a democracy that has many... (laughs) many counter counter majoritarian institutions like the United States but even in ones that don't there is a, there is a kind of like we often when we bring this up on the left there's a kind of like plugging plugging your ears and like if we were only a european parliamentary system we would not uh, look at france you know look at germany right now they're not having different problems from us and and in fact in some ways their fascist reaction is closer to winning um and I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that we live in an age of, so I, I you use non-movements, which I guess if people, uh, people who don't know their end notes don't know exactly what you're referring to. That is to. most people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, which, yeah, I, I mentioned um, the other day on, on Twitter that I was rereading um, On More Barbarians, and they're like, you're the ninth person to do so. It is, um, it is so fucking, I gotta say, like, I suggested that we discuss it on this episode, mainly to force myself to finish it, because it's a long ass <laughs> article. Yeah, it's fifty something pages, right? Well, it's not when you ca- when you take out all the endnotes and the endnotes. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just a uh, clever name, endnotes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I will say about this non-movement thing, I don't know that I totally agree with endnotes framing exactly. But what I'll say yeah, here is, yeah, you want to say what that point- framing is, because I feel like. Everyone but us yeah. and, like, five people probably doesn't know what it is. I have no idea, right? So non-movements is what's happening when the, when, the so, when the social subject has degenerated. So what do we mean by the social subject, right? So um, when the, the primary organizers of, of society don't have a way to organize in mass, it is not right to say right now that we don't have mass politics because you see mass eruptions of something like politics all the time, but it can't be positive. 
And the reason why endnotes cause it non-movements as opposed to movements, it isn't that they aren't movements at all, it's that movements move into something else in the old Marxist frameworks. They move into the workers' organizations, workers' organizations coalesce into parties, whose parties eventually coalesce into the rule, in the, in the theoretical apparatus, the rules of nations, and the rules of nations coalesce into the international. One, unfortunately, that didn't actually happen in the 20th century, and two, um, there's not a way for that to happen. One of the other points that this leads to is like there's there's this reemergence of anti-identitarian politics, and I have been linked to that. Um, what did you do? Uh, I published Mark Fisher seven years ago. <laughs> okay. On that Vampire Castle article. A damn the best. Oh, jeez. I You're mean, now look, tied yeah. to that nexus forever. I feel like Mark Fisher is like the Eddie Vedder of uh, leftist theory, and that you know, in and of himself, he was fine. He had some fine ideas. He invented a fine way to sing. And all the bad stuff that came afterwards is not necessarily his fault. <laughs> right. So a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of his followers are the creeds. Yeah. Of, um, <laughs> Doing the hell, hell in anti-identitarian politics. Yeah. I mean, except that Chad Kroger has a lot less blood on his hand, probably. But... Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I would I would say that uh, that the anti-identitarian movement. I've often talked about this in terms of like when people call them class re uh, reductionists, and I'm like, they're not class reductionists enough. If you took a really long view of historical class relations right now, it would make sense why these identitarian movements are popping up all the time, both on the left and the right, but also because those identities are are in a way dying and Endnotes gets into this mm -hmm. in, in the Onward Barbarians article the clear demarcations of like who's white and who's not is actually a lot harder to parse out than it used to be even though whiteness has expanded and expanded and expanded um, I, I mean I think the most obvious manifestation of this in, in the beginning of the last decade was you know the Zimmerman murder so like um, the Zimmerman trademark Martin thing because Zimmerman was was when they when you first had to hear in the media, you know, Hispanic white used a lot. That that had not been commonly used in in the general discourse. It was something that might have come up for academics, but it wasn't. And that was because this category was expanding to the point of nearly breaking. Mm. Um, and similar with proletarianness, this is what I, what I think that's kind of underlying. And Endnotes doesn't say this, but I I kind of think this: the proletarian wage relation is the dominant relationship for most of the population in the country, but it doesn't explain all the all the increments of like income and social status in the way most people experience their life, even though without that primary conflict, none of this is possible and it all falls apart. So ironically, because our proletarian relations is almost universal amongst most people, it's also something that has a lot less power. It's unclear what it can actually do. Um, and it breaks down into these kind of cul-de-sacs where you know unions were strong, they were, hard, they were very supported by the social compact, they became very interested in their own sections of the economy, they became even more interested in, the, in a lot of their own leadership's ability to access power. When they couldn't access power, frankly, a lot of times they were encouraged even indirectly by the federal government, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, this is kind of documented, by the federal government to deal with organized crime, and the more blue-collar the union, the more likely that was to happen. Um, 
what that did was kind of reestantiate all these cultural divisions amongst the working class. Now, a lot of people will think, will treat this, and, and a lot of people adjacent to parts of the DSA or who come out of it disgruntledly, will treat this as like a conspiracy theory foisted upon us by a bunch of liberal intellectuals that they like to call the PMC. Yeah, the misleaders um, of the working class. Yes. Uh, th this was also a popular theory um, in, the four in the 30s and 40s. This was the... Um, and it had both its American and, frankly, fascist instantiations. Um, and the fascist instantiation also racialized it. Um, the American instantiation did not, but... Um, even the, frankly, because America had its own racial project, it didn't, it didn't need to tie up into that as much. Um, what, what this hurts for a lot of the current left is a lot of the current left models in America is like feeling, you know, it's not even the Bolsheviks, it's like feeling nostalgic for FDR. Right. Um, and not even for what FDR actually did. It's not actually nostalgia for, for um, the New Deal because most people project great society and Eisenhower uh, post-war social compact programs back into the 30s where they didn't actually exist. Um, and so you have this kind of imaginary that we think we can posit to, but what's actually driving this in my mind, and this is where I do agree with EndNotes, is, you know, I'm going to try to speak as clearly on this as possible, but I'm going to be a fairly doctrinaire Marxist on this. Yeah, please do. Uh, the, the amount uh, we've used technology to reduce socially uh, necessary labor time. So if you think about any time you add a computer, you can reduce our, our machine even. You can reduce how much time it takes to do something. We have not used that to reduce work. Well, what we've done with that and what makes perfect sense from Marxist analysis is to further atomize the proletariat because now you don't have to do cooperative labor as much. And... Um, Reduce, you know, create conditions of overabundance of labor supply, so um, workers can basically drive their own wage down. Um, and not to mention, we are having value extracted from us when we don't think we're working. If you want to think yeah. about oh, yeah. social media, even like the fucking sleep apps now are collecting data from you when you sleep. Oh yeah, it was, and and part of this is because. Part of this, and again, I'm going to sound like a doctor on Marxist, because traditional commodity production has been has been stagnating um, in its ability to generate profits oh, yeah. for a century, with with a couple of upticks, with with massive destruction of capital, i.e., World War II was was a big reset last time. There's a minor reset after the oil shock in the 70s. Um, and neoliberalism was kind of a way to push that we set to its to its political yeah. logical political conclusion by forcing people to participate in markets and things that are traditionally not marketizable. Um, and uh, but all that's the profitability gains from neoliberalism were extremely short. Yeah. Um, and shallow. Yeah. And, and it's becoming clearer and clearer that while the business cycle is continuing um, and you do see ups, the ability for that money to for that money and that and, and the money is actually not the important part it's what the money represents right but for that wealth to be valorized income has gotten lower and lower so you have very slow growth um uh recoveries where and, and what you also see as an inst as an instance of that and this confuses people when we talk about the declining rates of profits because they think i mean that the rich are going to get poor mm. And actually, no, what happens is the rich invest less and literally hoard their resources more because there's less and less gains to be gotten. 
Um, and the only reason they might invest more is when 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 the government actually throws a lot of liquidity into um, into say a specific section of the economy, like quantitative easing has done for the last decade, particularly under particularly at the beginning and the end of um, this last business cycle round. But of course, this creates a, a giant mass of profits. But then if you look at the underlying uh, statistics, of course, the rate of profit, especially on manufacturing, uh, still, it might it might bump a little bit, but uh, that, that downward trajectory still continues. Right, and it's not surprising that like the biggest new industries in tech were no profit for a decade and were basically supported by the government until they could reach near monopoly status because that's what it takes to turn a profit now. You basically need a you basically need to extract rents and venture capital for long enough to bypass the fact there's no traditional way to be profitable at scale until you can then snap up most of the economy and run it back down. It's, it, it, it's either that it's or wait not, for a global pandemic to come along if you're a pharmaceutical company. Well, yeah, that's it. And have the state prop you up again through rents, but through indirect rents such as taxes. And so, like, it's it's where we kind of are. Um, and so I think, well, you know, end notes to talk about non-movements is we have these things that can express up in response to this. We know the police are getting more brutal because the police themselves are getting more desperate. I don't want to sound like I have any sympathy for the police. But as Innotes points out in this thing, if you just defund the cops and don't abolish them, their incentive structures to be more brutal actually do go up. Liberals, uh, centrist liberals, I'm even wrong about that. Um, you have to you have to socially replace them and remove their and remove their need. And um, you know, I, I'm not one of those people who says police abolition is impossible, but I do think you have to see it as a project of like fundamentally changing society because if you have these property relations such as they are. There's no way that like social workers can replace that role. Well, um, they do to some degree, right? Like, and, and this <laughs> is a critique that's been leveled against, um, you know, defund by ultra leftists actually, which is to say anything short of a total proletarian revolution that sweeps away the police entirely and the state um, and, you know, reorganizes social life is doomed to just transfer this coercive state power from one part of the state to another, right? They view the state in this sort of monolithic way, so they don't really differentiate between um, the police on the one hand, and then the other parts of the state, uh, like education, social work, uh, public health, whatever, uh, because they are also, can be very carceral in nature and, you know, ways of policing and surveilling the poor, e even thinking about, you know, the purpose that our education functions and making people into good little capitalist subjects. And I'm s somewhat sympathetic to that at the same time that I'm like, all right, well, the police mainly serve to kill people, though, and these other parts of the state, at least ostensibly, are supposed to help them stay alive. So, you know, like one step at a time, guys. Yeah, I'm not fighting for the overthrowing of public schools any anytime soon. <laughs> Although, I, you know, and I say that's that the vested, that's the vested self-interest self of the labor How, aristocracy. However, <laughs> however, what I will say about about public schools is. Um, their ties to the state is actually a problem even from a Marxist standpoint. Um, if you go back and read the critique of the Goethe program, Marx actually explicitly says that you shouldn't trust the state to do education. And the only thing that any legitimate bourgeois state would have the thing is to, mo is to make sure that teachers were actually credible in what they were teaching. So maybe licensure according to Mar under, under capitalism might be acceptable. 
um, but total state control of the education was was ill-advised. And when I when I tell people that because of the socialist love of public education, they look at me like I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, as bet. a person who works in the <laughs> yeah, as a person who works in the institution of education, I, I we are. We are carceral AF, and we also sell other functions. And I think COVID brought one of them straight out. Um, we have managed an education more than training the workforce. And in fact, there have been real declines in standards. And this is where you know people get mad at me for saying this because they don't like to deal with this fact. But there really has been real declines in standards in public education, particularly in the last 20 years. Um, attempts to to enforce those standards from above, from the federal mandate, had actually accelerated the problem. Um, so you have these testing regimes and stuff, which create all these kind of perverse incentive categories. Well, people who come out of liberal traditions hear the word perverse incentive and think conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, I'm just I'm just saying, in the system as it currently exists, one of the main functions of education is to regulate access to the job market, including just keeping people busy so they're not in it. Um, Capitalism is constantly creating perverse incentives, and that's a big part of our critique, right? And the more I mean, this is, the incentives, the more capitalist it is. This is like... <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, that's true. I'm just laughing. That's actually a true statement, Jamie. <laughs> now, this this gets back to, I, I think this is one thing that links maybe this entire discussion from uh, from Gaza, you know, through to public education, through policing, through our relationship to the, the bourgeois state uh, and liberal democracy, which is that it is fundamentally true to say that uh, schools, uh, schools under capitalism have a carceral function and they are there to create good capitalist subjects. It's functionally true to say that, and that ultimately that needs to be abolished. It's fundamentally true to say that the only real solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict is to have an overcoming of capitalist social relations and the unity of the proletariat in the Middle East and overthrow the state, all states, right? No it's state fundamentally, solution, baby. It's fundamentally true to say that we as members of labor unions are part of, um, of a capitalist racket, which actually does serve you know, the interests of the bourgeoisie in the last analysis. All that is true. But the question is like, is the gap between our reality now and that and that uh, fundamental critique at the end? And I think that we're all having a problem with bridging that gap because there has to be something in between. You know, there there has to be some way of like um, stopping police violence, for example, without before or without even going to the point where we destroy or and abolish the police. And that's, I think, the, the crux of the political issue right now is what are the intermediary steps? Because I think the communist critique, the Marxist critique is fundamentally correct. But without a path through that, um, it, we're just really if you just say, oh, well, the Gazans just need to overthrow Hamas and create communism. That's not really sufficient to the situation we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. Communism in a, a non-viable, non-contiguous, <laughs> like, yeah. blown, blown to fuck uh, couple of municipalities, that's yeah. totally... Blockaded, yeah. too. And, and, you know, we need a way to connect up what we are doing and what we can do right now with the revolutionary horizon, and that is not always easy and it's not always clear. But, you know, I do think it's kind of a cop-out to just be, like, an armchair critic and be like, well, anything short of the proletarian revolution uh, doesn't matter. Therefore, there's nothing anyone can or should be doing before that happens. Also, there's nothing we can do to make it happen as the organized left. We just have to sit here and wait. Like, that comes back around the other side and almost becomes liberalism. 